This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. So I'm here today at the ESG and Impact Retreat for 2022. Uh, We are in Hampshire at the Four Seasons Hotel. Our guests are about to sit down to a lovely lunch. Um, But I'm joined right now with Denai Kiriakopoulou, who is our lunchtime speaker. Denai is a senior policy fellow at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. And through her career, Denai has done extensive work on how the climate and our financial systems are and must be interlinked, really. Uh, so it's a privilege to, to have you here today, Denai. Thank you for joining me. Um, tonight, I wanted to start. Um, central banks, they really pave the way for our financial institutions in terms of policy, in terms of reform. Um, what affirmative action are we currently seeing from central, bre- central banks in terms of greening the financial system? And is there anything more that they can be doing, in your opinion? So central banks have come into this climate agenda relatively recently, um, and this came through the realization that climate risks are affecting the financial system. They are financial risks, and this is through several ways that they affect the economy, they affect the financial system. If you're an investor and you're holding an infrastructure or a real estate asset and there is greater frequency of natural disasters um, or weather events that destroy your assets, then that could have a systemic effect if uh, a lot of banks and financial institutions hold these type of assets. Or if they hold assets that are um, in the energy sector, for example, and we are moving towards a new energy system with different sources of energy, then these assets are over time going to become stranded. So you have risks to financial portfolios from holding these. So as supervisors of the financial system, they have a responsibility to protect it from these kind of risks. So it started all through a kind of very uh, narrow risk lens. And what they are doing, what uh, many central banks in advanced economies have been doing, where you have large and developed financial sectors, is um, testing how are the banks and their financial institutions prepared for these kind of risks? How are they transitioning and aligning themselves with the policy direction towards net zero, which, as we know, governments have committed to the Paris Agreement to keeping temperature increases to 1.5 degrees. So are they holding the right assets? Are they transitioning in that direction? So Uh, instruments such as, for example, climate stress tests in the same way that they're testing uh, banks' portfolios for macroeconomic scenarios in the traditional stress test, testing them for climate scenarios, or um, directing, in some cases, also making preferential arrangements for loans that are towards green projects uh, and also publishing the work that they're doing on that. So we are seeing that they are taking up this role. Um, And they are not only um, supervisors of the financial system, they also have their own investments. Central banks are investors, so they hold assets in foreign reserves portfolios, in their own portfolios. So they're also looking to green those and align them better with um, the transition that the governments, which they are linked to, um, have committed to. But they could, of course, do more, and they are doing more. They're now looking at, for example, um, how can we differentiate between how financial institutions are transitioning, Um, They could be bolder in terms of changing capital requirements for green versus brown projects. But to have that, you also need to have an underlying taxonomy of what is green, what is brown, something that we are seeing in some 
jurisdictions and not others. But I would just end that question by caveating that it's only so much that the financial system can do because, yes, you can direct capital in certain ways, you can protect banks and financial institutions from risk, but ultimately what we want to see is a change in the real economy. We need to see that we drive different kinds of vehicles or use different types of transport, that we use different kinds of energy, that our buildings are more energy efficient. And yes, you can direct capital towards this kind of investment, but you also need the real economy to shift because ultimately a financial institution that is uh, holding a diversified portfolio will hold a portfolio that reflects what's out there in the real economy. So governments have the kind of driver's seat in this transition and need to change incentive through changing prices and making sure that the environmental costs are included in the prices that we're seeing. Fantastic, fantastic. And I mean... In terms of the macroeconomic environment, it's fair to say, I think, that recently it's, it's been quite turbulent. Um, we're in a rising interest rate environment, for example, and today the US um, hikes their, their rates for the first time. But yeah, with these macroeconomic factors denied, um, why do, in policy, why do kind of those factors need to be considered when addressing the sustainability agenda? Because we're in a very different macroeconomic environment now than we were uh, a few months ago when we were all gathered in Glasgow in November 2021 and we were talking about this kind of great uh, role of finance and the commitments that we saw for COP26, um, right? COP yes, exactly, um, the UN meeting for climate. And now uh, we're in an environment that's very different. So we're seeing interest rates gradually rising in a lot of central banks. They're not going to be back to where they were before the financial crisis. They've kind of gone down over time quite a lot and we're still going to have low interest rates for longer but it is a change we're seeing rising inflation we have a, an energy crisis and a conflict in um, russia's invasion of ukraine we have rising food prices as a result so the environment is much more fragile at the moment both in terms of the macroeconomics you have now finance ministers worrying much more about how are people going to be paying their bills how are they going to be afford affording to warm their homes and uh, buy food rather than um, are we going to be hiking up the prices and the taxes for, for fuel because of the sustainability um, concerns and the climate targets that we have. We also have a much more fragile uh, geopolitical environment in terms of the cooperation across different countries that this uh, conflict has now um, increased the tensions. But what I would like to stress there is that we, we shouldn't... Um, we shouldn't take a step back. This is now a very critical decade that we're in, in terms of climate action. And the longer we kick the can down the road, the more costly it will be in the future. And this crisis is really a reminder of how vulnerable the economy and the financial system is to the dependence that we've built over many years, to fossil fuels, which we've said repeatedly again and again that they are finite resources, they are... Um, um, we compromise energy security because we are dependent on imports from countries that, um, as we saw now, can, can be unstable geopolitically. Um, so it's, it makes the case for moving harder and faster on climate much more clear. And it's a much greater imperative in this environment. I think um, even though there is a temptation to resist that, and maybe for a very short time, of course, we have to keep the lights on. Of course, we have to kind of get on with the economy and, and having a financial crisis at this point will be even more damaging. But we have to keep the eyes on this goal and we cannot afford to, to step back. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. 
Um, deny net zero is a term that we hear a lot, um, both from governments and central banks, but also you know in the private sector, banks and, and financial companies. Do you think it's enough for financial institutions to make net zero pledges in terms of sort of future proofing their business and maybe their investment strategy, or um, are there more things we need to sort of consider there? I think we need to have a very clear framework of where we want to get to and how we're going to get there. So what we saw in Paris was the kind of big commitment and it was a big breakthrough. What we saw in Glasgow was a lot of reinforcement of that. We saw kind of finance play a very strong role and we saw the big pledges. What we need to see now is following through on that and we need to have a pathway from getting to A to B and we cannot just have the kind of net zero commitments for 2050 as a lot of countries have and maybe institutions have and having a kind of budget plan for the next year and then having nothing in between. So what we need to focus now is on this missing middle of how we get to net zero, what is the path that makes sense and how quickly we do this because the kind of longer we take to get there, the more abrupt the changes will have to be um, towards the kind of end of 2050 as we get there. And that could be very disorderly for the economy, for the financial system. So we need to do it uh, now, front-loaded and... Uh, there is a lot more than we can do, of course. So it's not just about net zero. It's also about a just transition to net zero. Um, so I would stress that as a really important additional thing that uh, financial institutions and policymakers must be thinking about. Because if you're just thinking about net zero, um, you risk that the policies that you put in place are not going to be popular. And then uh, you can get politicians voted in who would take even more steps back because that's the perception. So... I think it's not just about net zero, it's about just and net zero. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, our listeners are financial advisors, so they will make investment decisions on behalf of their clients uh, regularly. Um, is there something you would say to them, I suppose, about a role that they could have in um, moving into a more sustainable world in, in the correct way? So at the moment, we're seeing sustainability really become mainstream in terms of the financial options that um, that individuals, that financial institutions have, which is a very, very good thing. We need to have more scrutiny and more transparency in terms of how uh, what impact these investments are creating. Because if you're simply making your portfolio green, but you're, you're shifting these assets to someone else who will continue financing what's happening in the economy that is the kind of dirty path, then you're not really making an impact. So I think um, thinking about it in terms of what will make the biggest difference and the biggest change in the economy, it may not be that if I stop investing in a dirty company, that will make the biggest difference because someone else may continue investing in it that doesn't care as much about sustainability as I do. So is there a way that I can use my power, the power of my money, the power of my investments to steer these companies in a sustainable direction? And how can I work with um, the financial institutions that manage that money um, to, to do that? And what's the best way and the, and the most effective way to engage? So I think that's one thing to consider. Uh, but also looking at the options that are out there now in terms of investing directly in sustainable assets and where the investment needs are. The, the biggest breakthroughs we have to make are in energy. That's the kind of key um, in terms of uh, lowering the carbon emissions and achieving net zero, but there's also a lot of other areas of the economy that we need to change, transport of course, and 
And let's not forget that even if we uh, manage to keep temperature increases to 1.5 degrees, that will still be a very big difference in our climate. Mm -hmm. one, we're now at over 1 degrees, and we're already seeing so many more and more intense disasters and weather effects. So 1.5 degrees, which is the best scenario mm -hmm. now, is still going to be a big difference. So we should not only focus on the investments that limit temperature increases, mm. we must absolutely do those, but we must also invest in the technologies, in the, um, uh, in the policies that will help us adapt to this change in climate that mm. in the best case scenario we will still see. So we need to insulate uh, homes better, make heat, heat resilient buildings. Uh, we need to adapt, especially in developing economies that are going to suffer this uh, the most right now, uh, we are seeing extreme heat waves in India, for example. So we need to also work on adapting to rising sea levels, to um, more extreme temperatures, to early warning systems for disasters. So there's um, considering these investments as well, I think is going to be very important. So not just thinking about what is going to limit climate change. So not thinking just about, okay, we need to move to electric vehicles and we need to pollute less, but also thinking about, you know, world where we have more disasters, we need to also think about are we going to have um, systems that help people survive better those conditions, um, taking it as a given that the climate is changing. Right, right. That's so interesting, Naomi. You've certainly given us a lot to think about. So thank you very much again for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.